The sermon text this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, you say that heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool that that we could never make a house or a temple big enough for you. We could never do that on our own. Because everywhere we go and everywhere we look, you made everything that is, and, and so it's all yours to begin with. But then there's this staggering promise that you put on the end of that lesson, and you say, but... To this one will I look, to him who is humble and who is contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That gets your attention. Father, would you grant that we would be a humbled people under the gospel today that we would be contrite in our spirits that we would be glad to confess the brokenness of our spirits and that we would tremble with joy and wonder at your word and I pray Father particularly for those not yet in Christ that you would grant them new life by your spirit and draw them invincibly to your son, Jesus, today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's always a lot more fun to preach on other people's sins uh, than your own. Um, You should try it sometime. Now, this morning, uh, we're thinking about pride because Jesus brings it up. Really, the disciples bring it up. And it's very important to see the context of uh, how this comes up. If you think about our journey so far through Matthew 16 and 17, uh, there have been three big ideas, three big themes that we've been going back to over and over and over again. And the first is Jesus' messianic identity, right? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, Jesus, remember in chapter 16, Jesus says, okay, who do the people say that I am? And then who do you, the disciples, say that I am? And Peter, uh, representing the disciples, says, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you got it. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's a big 
ideas, Jesus' messianic identity, but related to that is also his messianic mission, which right after that uh, confession, he says, is to build his church, that Jesus' great work in history is that he's going to be building his church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. An amazing a promise, an amazing declaration of his sovereignty over history, that this is what's going to happen, that through his church, the church that he builds, uh, the powers of hell are going to be broken. All the more amazing because of the third theme, which is his method or how he's going to build his church. And that is really the most shocking thing of everything that he says to us because he's saying to us again and again, saying to his disciples, here's how I'm going to do this. I'm the king and I'm going to take my crown and I'm going to use it on a cross to build my church. I'm not going to lose it there. I'm going to use it there. I am the kind of king who's going to take his glory take his honor, take his authority, and I'm going to spend it on a Roman cross. And it's going to look like all I have is a crown of thorns, but what I am wearing there and the authority that I'm wielding there is the authority of the king of the universe. And I am doing that to rescue, to glorify myself by rescuing and delivering sinners. <laughs> now that's amazing. And then this morning, he begins, as we're in chapter 18, he begins to talk with his disciples about the kind of community that the church will be inside. And the, what the character of the relationships of his disciples within the church and therefore our relationships inside the church is going to be. And we're going to look. There are a bunch of subjects that come up in chapter 18. And we're going to deal with the first one today, the theme of pride. The very first thing he deals with, isn't this interesting? The very first thing really that comes up. It, we're going to see the question comes from the disciples. The very first thing that rears its head is pride. And Jesus makes it very clear that there is no pride of place in his church and there is no place for pride in his church. And we're going to think about his description of the problem and the remedy. We're going to look at it under three headings. Understanding our pride, fleeing our pride, and then the cure for our pride or curing our pride. And uh, lest you think that this only applies to other people, let me share with you the last sentence in C.S. Lewis's chapter on pride in mere Christianity. It's a great chapter, and he just, till the last sentence, he holds back this bomb, and then he just detonates it. And then you're having to say, oh my goodness, how do I go on to the next chapter? This is what he says. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. So we all need this. Let's understand our pride first and look at the disciples' question in verse 1. Look uh, with me again very carefully at verse 1. It's very interesting. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom 
of heaven. Now, isn't that interesting? I love the fact that this is Matthew who's writing this, and that means that Matthew was in that group. <laughs> so Matthew, I think, when he's writing his gospel, is going, I can't, I, you know, I look back on this, I cannot believe this. Where did that come from? And notice how he's very carefully emphasized that it was at that time. And he's emphasizing that this is not just a question of one of the disciples or two of the disciples or even 11 of the disciples, and there's one exception. No, it's all the disciples. And they come, and they're all thinking about one question. Do you notice that? They, they don't agree about anything else except this one question. Who's the greatest? Now, why is this coming up? Is it coming up because in chapter 16, it looks like Jesus singles, uh, singles Peter out for, for being the, the rock on which he's going to build his church? Does it, does, it come up because, um, does it come up because he only took three of the 12 up the mountain with him, the Mount of Transfiguration? And then when he came down, he, he lambasts the nine who didn't go up for their lack of faith, I mean, he's sure he lumps in the other three as well. Is it coming up because of that? Is it coming up because uh, in, the, in the last illustration with the two drachma tacks that we looked at last week, Jesus appears to be one-on-one with Peter and the other disciples are outside? Is, does it come up for those reasons? Or is this question coming up? Is Matthew telling us that this question is coming up just because the disciples are human beings? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're not asking about, this is really important to see this, they are not asking about greatness in general. They're not saying, notice this, friends, they are not asking, Lord, what would it mean to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Because if they had asked that, that by definition would be something that could be a status that would be shared by many. You see that? No, their question is different. Their question is who, singular, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? By definition, a status and standing that can only be occupied by one. And they're asking together because they each want to be that one. They each want to be greater than the other disciples. Greatness isn't enough. Being greater than their fellow disciples is the real treasure. They are asking this question because of their pride. And I have to tell you, I'm really happy about that. This is just so comforting to me, personally, because Jesus keeps going to Jerusalem. It is so comforting to me that this issue comes up this late into Jesus' ministry. It is comforting to me that the disciples seem totally oblivious at the time they ask this question, how 
outrageous it is. It's comforting to me to see that the disciples appear totally oblivious to how completely out of touch their preoccupation about being the greatest is with everything that Jesus has just got done telling them. You know why that's so comforting to me? Because I'm just like them. And this Jesus doesn't say, that's it. You guys, I mean, this is not just a minor course correction, guys. This is not just a little bit off. This is 180 degrees from what he's talking about. And yet Jesus does not walk away. He keeps going toward Jerusalem. Yes, he deals with it pastorally, but he is going to go to Jerusalem. And his trip to Jerusalem, friends, is not in proportion to or contingent upon their getting it. He's going to serve them whether or not they get it. Doesn't that make you happy? Aren't you grateful that Jesus Christ has more blessings to give than you have faith? You should be. Now notice what Jesus does in response. I'm departing a little bit from the outline that I put in the, in the bulletin because as I was working on this this morning, I realized I, I didn't have it organized right, so forgive me, okay? So I want to jump now before we look at some features of pride that, that Jesus describes here. I want, I want you to see what Jesus does in response to their question. I mean, it's a whopper of a question, isn't it? And what does Jesus do? He slows things down. He, in verse 2, he calls a child to him. We don't know how old the child was. We know it's a small child because of the, of the, of the word that's used to describe the child. But it's obviously a child who can, can respond to Jesus and walk over, right? Jesus doesn't have to go pick him up. And he puts the child in the midst of the disciples, in the midst of all these grown men. And then he says this. Notice what he says in verse 3. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's interesting because that's not what they were asking about. Do you notice that? They asked, who's the greatest? Assuming that they were all in. He says, let me show you, let me show you your pride by changing the question that you're supposed to think about right now. Let me bring your pride to the surface by telling you that you are preoccupied with the wrong question. You have assumed that you're already in the kingdom. Notice how this is a very severe kind of question. It's very unsettling. He's saying, listen, you're focusing on the wrong question. You should be, uh, in fact, your preoccupation with being the greatest shows that you don't understand an even more basic question, which is how one enters the kingdom of heaven. Your definitions of greatest are radically at odds and not compatible with even entering my kingdom. And if we're honest, we sympathize a lot more with the disciples' position. I mean, the disciples' preoccupation is the preoccupation of our culture. It's the preoccupation we've been taught. 
It's the preoccupation, if we're honest, that we have sought after. So what Jesus is describing is very radical. Now, I want, I want you to notice three things from this exchange about pride that I hope will help us understand how pride works better. First, I want you to notice the power of pride here. Notice that uh, how our text gives us two measures of the power of pride. First, who it grows in, and second, where it grows. Who it grows in. Pride is no respecter of persons. These are the disciples, right? And it's all 12 of them, and they are equally preoccupied with the question of who among them is the greatest. Now, you know, you know something about this, right? I mean, the person at the top of the heap in the pecking order can be just as preoccupied and prideful as the person at the bottom of the heap and the bottom of the pecking order. You do understand that, right? I mean, we tend to assume that the people at the top of the pecking order are the ones who are consumed by pride, whereas the person at the bottom of the pecking order, by definition, is free from pride. That is very wrong. It is often the people who are at the bottom of the pecking order who are the most prideful. The only difference between them and the guys on the top is that they have not succeeded in their pride. Their pride hasn't succeeded. Their pride has let them down. They thought they were the smartest guy in the office. They may have been the smartest guy in the office. But they didn't get the promotion. And the guy who's dumber and lazier got the promotion. The fact that you're on the bottom of the pecking order does not mean that you're not proud. You see, pride is all about where your confidence is. So don't assume that because you've failed and been disappointed that you're invulnerable to the temptation of pride. No, it's very powerful. It is no respecter of persons, and it's no respecter of the station of persons. But the second measure of the power of pride that that Jesus uh, points out here, or that our passage points out, is where pride grows. (laughs) And, you know, I've already pointed out how Matthew very deliberately puts in this time marker. So we understand that, that the question of who the greatest is came up at that time. Well, what's that time? Well, how about Jesus's Uh, predictions, multiple predictions of his death and how he's going to use his glory, that his uh, his path to to glory is going to be through suffering, that he is going to be delivered up, delivered over, like we looked at last week in verses uh, 22 and 23, and he's going to be killed, and then he's going to be raised on the third day. So there is going to be glory, but the path to glory goes through suffering. And then, and then everything he says in chapter 16, verse 21, friends, it is a cross-laden, cross-filled, suffering-laden context in which the high king has told us that what it means for him to be the son of man is that he is going to be judicially executed. He's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer many things. And so for the question of who's the greatest to come up after that whole vision has been said and reinforced and reinforced again, shows you that pride is a survivor. It can thrive in the most, in the harshest environments. It can thrive in your failures. 
It can thrive in your disappointments. It can thrive inside the church, like Lewis points out. So that's the power of pride. Think also about the insecurity of pride. And this is a great irony of pride, I think. Think about it. The very thing about which we are most proud in our lives is the very thing we are most insecure about. That's how it works. Take the disciples. They ask the question because they're proud. However Jesus defines the target of what the greatest is, now notice this, they ask the question because they're proud. And however Jesus defines the answer for what the target of being the greatest is, however he defines it, notice, they still are insecure enough to feel like they got to ask the question. Do you see that? they got to know. Of course, they all think, or they at least all would like to imagine, that they can be that one. If Jesus responds with an answer that, that fits the form of their question, who's the greatest? In other words, there's only room for one on the top of that pyramid. Just describe that profile. That's within my reach. Otherwise, they all wouldn't be asking the question. But notice, they got to ask the question. And you know this is true from your own experience. You know that your pride and your insecurity are inseparable. What happens, or whatever it is, I want you to think about whatever it is about yourself that you regard as better than others. Now, if you're like me, uh, that's a list. And then I want you to think about those moments, those experiences in your life. Listen, it could be just that you're a kinder person than other people. You're more patient. It could be that you're, you're more skilled at certain things. It could be that you're smarter. It could be whatever it is. Your kids are better, whatever that means. And then I want you to think about those moments in life that God graciously brings in when you suddenly are exposed to someone who is way better at those things or has way more of those things than you do. And how do you feel in that moment? Does your heart, what happens to your heart? Does your heart say, I celebrate being exceeded by that person? Of course it doesn't. At least it usually doesn't. What usually happens is that you go into a tailspin. Now, I, I have uh, one example that I'll share with you. Okay, when I was in school, uh, I, I just, I worked hard in school, and, and I did well in school. And that was all by God's grace. I didn't realize it was by God's grace. I thought it was me. And then I got to law school. I mean, college, I worked hard, but I did well in college. And I got to law school. And there's one day where I remember, I remember sitting in my contracts section with Professor Jack Coons. And it was a smaller section. There were only 20 of us in the room. And contracts is like the bread and butter of your first year of law school. 
And so much, if you don't get contracts, hey, uh, start, start, start cooking hamburgers, okay? That's essentially the message that gets sent, sent to you in law school. And I remember, I was in my small group section. I'd been in law school about a month. I remember sitting in that room, and suddenly the epiphany broke in upon me. And it was not a welcome epiphany that I was pretty sure as I looked around the room that I was the dumbest person in that room. And you know what I did not do? I didn't say, praise God, thank you for putting me in a place where I am having to see and face the reality that I have relied on my ability to understand and do things in school and in study for my identity. I didn't praise God for that. I went into a tailspin. I went into a tailspin because of the way that I've been made by God and because of the way that I perverted the way that I've been made by God. I went into a tailspin the way many of you go into tailspins when you're exposed to people who are greater than you. Why do we fall for this? Why does pride work this way? Why is there this insecurity, this inescapable relationship between our pride and our insecurity? And here's what I think the reason is. It's because, friends, we were made by God to learn and know who and why we are, not through a process of self-discovery, not through a process of self-creation. We were not made to make our own meaning and our own identity. If you go back to Genesis 1, we were made to know our identity, to know who and why we are by having it made known to us through a voice outside of us. God's voice. So that's why when God makes Adam and Eve in his image in Genesis 1, 27, that's why it doesn't end there. Because when you get to the end of verse 27, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, but they didn't know that they'd been made in the image of God. And that's why in verse 28, you know, if if, if Genesis 1 ended there, It'd still be a wonderful story, but it wouldn't be nearly as wonderful because of verse 28. Because what happens in verse 28 tells you what it means to be human and even tells us why it is that our pride is also our insecurity. Because what happens in verse 28 is that the the text says, and God blessed them and said. In other words, God blessed them by telling them who they are. To have the voice of God telling you who you are is why, is how you were made, friends. You were not made to figure it out on your own. You were made to have this voice outside of you telling you, rendering an evaluation of you, telling you who you are and why you are. So when you cut yourself off from God, when you resolve not to listen to his voice, you can't change the way you're made. You can't change your constitution that you uh, can only survive by having an external voice. No, the only thing you can do is find other voices and look to other voices and other surrogate placeholders, other verdict renderers 
who can speak in your life. So that could be money, that could be your job, that could be relationships, that could be popularity, the approval of people, it could be your achievements. But friends, all those things are voices outside of us that we are looking to, to render a verdict for us. And when we look to other external voices besides God's telling us who we are, we are by definition going to be instable and insecure because we have turned away from the foundation of living waters to hew cisterns for ourselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And by definition, we will always therefore be insecure. Our pride is our insecurity. So that's the second thing, the insecurity of pride. And the third thing I want you to see from just the disciples' questions, I want you to notice how incompatible pride is with love. And this is a key issue for Jesus because he's going to, as he unfolds what the character of, his relation, of the relationships of his disciples is supposed to be inside the church, this is going to be in chapter 18. This is love. This is love in action in the rest of chapter 18. And friends, right out of the, right out of the gate, he is dealing with pride head on because there is no way that you can love somebody you're trying to beat. You can't do it. You cannot love somebody you're trying to exceed. You cannot love somebody you're trying to elevate yourself above. But you can love somebody who you want to exceed you. You can love somebody whom you want to elevate above you. You cannot love somebody you are trying to beat. And this is critical inside the church absolutely critical because the church is to be the body shaped by the love of Christ and if what you're trying to do is to get a leg up you're not going to love somebody you're going to elevate yourself above them and put them down see love wants to raise its objects it never wants to raise itself And so Jesus is dealing with this head on right away. And this challenges every single one of us. So what does he say, secondly, uh, if we begin to understand our pride, what does he say about fleeing our pride? Well, the escape route that Jesus describes goes downward, doesn't it? You notice that? It's a downward path. Look at verses 2 through 4. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you turn, now that's interesting, unless you turn and become like children. Don't you want to be like Nicodemus at this point and say, hey, how are you supposed to do that? A man can't enter into his mother's womb a second time. An adult can't become a child, can he? Don't you feel like you can channel Nicodemus here? Okay, you can laugh. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's describing a downward path. It leads us downward in humility. The only way up is down, is what he's describing. And that's his path, right? So what does that mean to turn and become 
like children. What does it mean to humble yourself like the child that is before him? Well, four things I want you to think about with me. First, I want you to see that that downward path is universal. I want you to see that it is unnatural. I want you to see that it is continual. And I want you to see that it is a path of equals. Okay, first, it's universal. Notice that the path that Jesus is describing is really, he's imposing. He's not just describing a path. He's imposing an absolute and universal uh, requirement. Whatever turning and becoming like a child means, it applies to all of his disciples. Do you see that? He doesn't just single, single out uh, the, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John. He doesn't just say, hey, you loudmouths over there, unless you become like, no, he says it to all of his disciples. This is a universal requirement. And when he talks, notice, when he talks about humbling our turning and becoming like children, and when he says in verse 3 that this is the condition for entering the kingdom of heaven, he says, unless you turn, he says, truly, I say to you, this is very serious, he's saying, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's describing the condition for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, and by describing this as a condition for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, that means that he is also defining what it means to be a Christian. And what it means to be a Christian, then, is that you are somebody who has turned and continues to turn and becomes and continues to become like children. It's a universal requirement. Think about what, what did this child do? In verse 4, he, he highlights, he honors this child. Isn't this amazing what he does? And this kid had no idea what he was getting pulled into. He had no idea how honored he was going to be by Jesus. Man, this is so amazing. Calls the child. Child comes in. What did the child do? The child responded to the call of Jesus. This is not hard, friends. It is beautiful. What does the child do? The child comes when Jesus calls him. The child places himself under Jesus' hands, lets Jesus move him to where he wants him to go. He obeys Jesus. He responds to him. He doesn't blow him off. He doesn't run the other way. He stands before Jesus to serve him and his purposes. He places himself at Jesus' disposal and he receives Jesus' blessing. Friends, there is no one who can't do those things. And everyone must do them because that's what it means to be a Christian. But Although that's a universal requirement for all of Jesus' disciples, notice how unnatural it is. And even Jesus is telling us that it's unnatural. He says, he doesn't say, hey, unless you guys cut it out and keep going in the right direction. No, he says, unless you turn. And what he's really talking about is repentance. Unless you turn and become like children, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying this is unnatural. He knows it's unnatural. 
He knows it's not what we've been taught. He knows it's not what we've sought for ourselves. He is telling them to do what does not come naturally. He is telling them to walk. Think about what is it that defines a child? What is it that, that, that makes a child, that defines a child? Well, let try it this way. A child is defined by these two words, helpless need. That's what a child is, defined by helpless need. A child does not earn the love he or she receives. A child does not present a a case of his or her merit justifying receiving the blessings that they receive. A child does not rely on a record of achievements or ability or insight. What a child does is rely not on his own heart or her own heart, but on the hearts of the one above him or her. And Jesus is calling us, friends, he's calling his disciples to stand, and this is an unnatural thing. We've got to turn in order to do this because there is no other way or place in life where we learn this. He's telling us when we turn, to turn toward the kingdom of heaven, toward his realm, toward his rule, and to stand before all the blessings of the kingdom of heaven as passive recipients. To renounce our claims of merit. To renounce our claims of achievement. To renounce uh, all the things that, that we would bolster a case for entitlement with and just be a child who is before God before the high king of heaven in a posture of helpless need. We have no claims. We have no right to the kingdom of heaven. We do not stand in the posture of a creditor toward the universe. And we do not stand in the posture of a creditor toward God. You know, I was reading this week, uh, there's an article uh, in the paper about J.P. Morgan, and, uh, you know, they're negotiating, you probably saw this in the news, they're negotiating with uh, the Department of Justice for the biggest fine ever paid in the history of fines, you know, $11 billion, something like that. And this week on Thursday, the, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, uh, Jamie Dimon, went to uh, uh, negotiate with Attorney General uh, Holder, and I, I, I was, I'm fascinated by this whole story. Okay, so anyway, I decided to read through the article, and the last sentence of the article always pays off. The last sentence of the article, you got to stick around, don't give up. And the last page of the article, there was something. As soon as I read it, I went, "Oh my word!" Jamie Dimon, who sits atop this financial empire always carries around in his breast pocket, and he's done this for years, two lists. List number one, what I owe people. List number two, what people owe me. And of course, immediately what happens when I read that is my pride starts going in full fury. Oh, what a self-righteous jerk, you know, blah, 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 blah. But you know what? even though I don't write it down, uh, I do carry around in my unbelief a list of things that I think God owes me because I'm trying to serve him. 
way too much in my life, more than I am willing to be uh, totally honest with you about. I do live often at an emotional level like I'm God's creditor. Now, I trust in his promises, but he doesn't owe me those promises because I've done something. He'll be faithful to his promises because he made the promises. So I can trust in them, but not because of my performance. And to be a child before the king of heaven is to say, I live, and it doesn't matter how long I live as a Christian, because this is a continual turning, right? This is not just once at the beginning of the Christian life. This is a continual turning over and over and over again, standing before the king of heaven as a passive recipient. I don't ever, ever get to a place where I can look at my record and say, my record justifies your blessings to me. No, I'm, I'm under this waterfall of God's mercy. That's what it means to be like a child. And it's people who know they have nothing who receive everything. That's how you get into the kingdom of heaven, friends. This is what sets the gospel apart from every other way of life, every other religion, every other approach to life that you have been following or taught to follow because it's your need that you bring. It's your helplessness that qualifies you. If you don't admit your helplessness, if you don't admit your need in repentance, you have not turned, friends, and you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the way the world it goes. This is the way to Jesus. And you notice, if we follow Jesus' advice, you notice what that does. What that means is immediately everybody inside the church, if we are doing that, it equalizes everybody. See, pride only functions when there are gradations and differences among people. But if what Jesus is describing is a universal and continual requirement uh, and profile, the definition of a Christian, if he's if he's if he's explaining and describing this as a universal and continual requirement. You know what that means? That means everybody inside the church is equal before God. There are no gifts that are more important than other gifts. There is no status or office that is more important than any other And you notice what that does? That brings down the proud from the top and it raises the proud from the bottom. And it puts us all in a place of according and recognizing dignity to one another in humility before God. There's no reason to be proud. See what Jesus is saying? It's very liberating. There is no pride of place, Jesus is saying, because there is no place for pride. So my Christian brothers and sisters, we need to remember that, don't we? Because there are all kinds of ways that we look for distinctions among one another. We uh, evaluate each other's uh, family leadership. We evaluate each other's whether whether someone is living what we think of as a Christian lifestyle. Don't you dare do that to each other. It's not okay. 
We evaluate each other's theology. We evaluate the way we, uh, other people sound in prayer. We evaluate the way we sound in prayer. We, we look for all kinds of distinctions. We're always, this, this, this pride that is such a survivor in our hearts, it's always looking for a leg up. And you know what? It's never worth climbing. It's never worth climbing. What do you get? Okay, so let's say there is some distinction. Let's say you, let's say you are smarter than the other people you're around. How did you get that intelligence? Can I ask you to think about that? Let's say you are more successful than the next person and, and you've tried to live your uh, life and lead and conduct your business in a way that was, as far as you knew, consistent with uh, biblical principles and you've tried to do it by faith. But friend, you must never turn the blessings of God into an argument for your superiority because how is it that you got that commitment? How is it that you maintain that commitment? You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a church that is full of proud people that have been blessed by God's Spirit extravagantly with great spiritual power. And what has happened is, as would always happen where there is any uh, thriving pride, there are going to be dissensions and factions because, just like the disciples, somebody is wanting to jockey. And Paul says, are you kidding me in chapter 4? He says, are you serious? What what do you have, he asks, that you did not receive? You didn't earn anything. And if everything that you are and have is the gift of God, he gave you your intelligence, he blessed you with the business opportunities, he guarded your children, he nurtured them, he kept your marriage, he kept you from sexual sin, he's the one who gave you every blessing you have. If that's true, if you were just simply the helpless, needy recipient at the bottom of his waterfall, then why do you boast as if you had not received? As, as though you'd earn them. So we need to remember that. And my non-Christian friends, that applies to you as well because you have to have a case. What is your case for gaining God's approval? What is it that when given the opportunity to stand before God and give an account for your life which you will be required to do what my friend is going to be your opening statement if it is anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified you will not prevail So I urge you to turn and become like a child before this gracious and safe father and brother so that you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Because this is really where the cure for our pride is, isn't it? And that brings us to our last point. There's only one cure for pride, and it's not our failure it's not our disappointment. It's not our humiliation. There's only one cure for pride, and that, that cure is love. Love. 
pride, like we thought about earlier, pride can flourish in the soil of disappointment and in the soil of failure. But you know, pride cannot flourish in the soil of love. And this love in particular that I'm talking about is the love of Jesus Christ. A love that is the love of a king. A king whose love you measure not by how far it climbs up, but by how low he is willing to come down. A love that is measured not by his ascent, but by his descent. Uh, The love of a king who's willing to spend his crown on a cross for us. It is an amazing love. And the only way to be liberated from our pride is to be liberated by Jesus and his cross. Think with me about Jesus' path to his cross. I mean, who is this? Who is this, friends? who says to his disciples, you should listen to me. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And whoever humbles himself like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who is it who is saying that to us? Who is it who knows the truth of that? It's the one who himself, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, who has already humbled himself. To be much lower than a child. He was in a womb. And after this point, is going to go all the way to a cross. Now, friends, so much higher than we will ever be, and so much lower then we will ever have to go because of what he's done for us. Bring your pride up alongside that story. Jesus' path to the cross is absolutely stunning. Turn, Turn with me to Philippians 2. By the way, Bob, I know you've, I know the clock is fast. I'm, I'm on to you. Start at verse 3. This is page uh, 980 in your pew Bible. See, what Paul's got to deal with as an apostle is he's got a church of Christians. And they've got conflict. Why do they have conflict? Because they're proud. So notice verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit pride, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Well, how in the world are we going to do that, Paul? And why would we? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Are you kidding me? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh Uh-oh who though he was in the form of God... See, what Paul is saying is there was a music, there was a song, there was something that Jesus did. This is the kind of king he is and was. He was the high king of heaven. He, He, though he was in the form of God, he was as high as we could 
as he could possibly be. We can't even imagine what it means to be God. Friends, do you realize that the most, uh, the, the clearest uh, theological formulations that we are able to, to put together as descriptions of God from his word, that it is baby talk compared to the reality. And Jesus was in, the Son of God was in the form of God, and at the peak of his glory, even there, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It was not something that he wanted to just seize and hold and be the king of the hill. What does it mean to be the greatest? Because the nature of God is the core of reality. And at the core of reality, what does it mean to be the greatest? What it means to be the greatest is that you are willing to become the lowest. So he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Not because external circumstances required him to do it, but because of the, the, the current of his own heart. This is what it means to be God. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, friends, just for the Son of God to become incarnate is an astonishing humility because the distance between God and human beings is infinite. But that wasn't enough. The manger was the highest point on the, place of the, uh, on, the, on, the, on the face of the earth that Jesus Christ ever occupied before his resurrection. Because once he was found in human form, verse 8, he humbled himself still further by becoming obedient to the point of death. And he died. And not just any death, but he died a death on a cross. Now, friends, that's a love that descends. That's Jesus' path to the cross. And love, we're being shown there, doesn't elevate itself it elevates its objects. And to see that when you were as far away from God as you could possibly be, he came down to you. He came down for you. <laughs> Bring your pride up against this true love that descends, that has this downward path. That is the nature of true love. And so the story of our relationships with one another is supposed, to, is supposed to be the echo of this story from Philippians 2 of what the Son of God has done for us, his relationship to us. That's Jesus' path to the cross. But what about his path from the cross? What does he do with his cross that will cure us of our pride? Friends, he does two things. He takes something away from us, and then he gives something to us. What he takes away from us is... Because he has leveled all of us, and there is no one in his church, there's no one on the earth who does not need the full atonement that he alone has made on the cross, what he does, what he takes away from us is any illusion about our relative merit to one another. And he's leveled us all. So he takes the argument that the world wants us to build up, he takes it away. But as he takes that away from us, as he takes away our ability to boast and be prideful. He also takes away even our desire to boast and be proud because he gives us from the cross a new status and a new standing. This voice, there's a voice from the cross to Christ's people 
by which the very God, the very God whose voice we tried to silence, now speaks a word of peace to us from the cross and says, You are forgiven, you are ransomed, you are healed, you are restored, you are forgiven, you are children of God. I have given you eternal life. You are reconciled to God as his children, and he to you as your father, and I am your brother, and these are never going to change because they are gifts, not of your achievement, but of mine. Now, to the degree that I believe that and to the degree that you believe that and accept that and revel in it, you know what? We won't even want to be proud. There are too many other much more important and beautiful things to do. Friends, it's time that we all start growing down together. Let's pray. Father, we are more prideful than we imagine and we are much less humble than we imagined. And we thank you for your great mercy and kindness to us and how I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters and our friends here that, again, you would embed our lives in the wonder of the true story, the best story of all, the love of a king who has descended to us for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.